you are tuned into Aminder. Welcome to the show. Today we'll be talking about cognitive and neuropsychiatric changes in Alzheimer's disease. We all know that Alzheimer's patients suffer from cognitive decline and dementia. But what about other behavioral changes, such as changes to sensory processing or sleep disturbances? What are the mechanisms behind these symptoms, and can they be used to identify AD at early stages before cognitive decline? And once cognitive decline has started, what more can we discover about the underlying neurological cause of this symptom? We'll talk about papers covering all of this and more in this jam-packed episode. Stay tuned! Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. I'm Ellen Kosh, and I'm your host for this episode. I'm excited to be hosting again as I took a brief hiatus from hosting over the last few months to focus more on management with the podcast, but I'm back to bring you a topic that's very close to me. We've got a wide array of papers to get to today, including papers on the mechanisms behind sensory processing, cognition and memory, psychiatric symptoms and emotions, and sleep, all in the context of Alzheimer's disease, of course. I just wanted to take a minute to say that in this podcast, we're summarizing the latest papers that have come out in the field based on the abstract alone, and we haven't critically reviewed the papers ourselves. All of the papers covered in the episode were published in peer-reviewed journals and appeared on PubMed in January 2021. If you're interested in any of the research covered in the episode, please check out our bibliography and explore the paper in more detail. And I also wanted to mention some news on some changes to Aminder that we've made recently. We've cut down on the number of episodes that we're going to be releasing per month. Not every topic is going to be made into episodes. However, there will be a bibliography for every single topic that we sort our abstracts into, even if it's not an episode. So we still have a way for you to keep up with all the primary papers that came out on AD research, including your topic of interest. This change was made simply because we didn't have the time or resources to produce episodes for every single topic right now and still provide you with top-notch quality summaries and cover every single month. We're all volunteers right now and most of us are graduate students or medical students or postdocs, so we have a lot on our plate and each episode involves a huge team effort from several of us. But our bibliographies are continually being updated, so keep checking back for more topics. There's a link to the bibliographies in the show notes. And if there's a topic that you're looking for, don't be shy. You can ask us about it by sending us an email at aminderpodcast.gmail.com, or you could find us on Twitter, or actually Instagram or Facebook, however you want to contact us. We're still releasing a lot of episodes, though, and a new episode will be popping up on your podcast feed every day with a break on Saturdays. That's six episodes a week. I should know because I'm the one who posts them. Okay, there's a lot happening with Aminder these days, so thanks for sticking with me through that intro and through all those announcements. Now let's get into the papers. In the first section of today's episode, we have six papers looking at sensory processing, including olfaction, vision, and pain processing. These papers span human and animal research using a multitude of different methods and exploring different potential mechanisms behind sensory deficits. Four of these papers are on olfactory processing. 
You may know that patients with Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's experience anosmia, the loss of the sense of smell. Research suggests that olfactory impairment may signal the emergence of prodromal AD and that anosmia may predict the severity of disease. The next four papers dive into this topic, starting with paper number one of the episode being odorant-induced brain activation as a function of normal aging and Alzheimer's disease, a preliminary study. The first author is Stefaner, and the last author is Devanand, and this paper was published in Behavior and Brain Research. So in this preliminary fMRI study, authors compared the neuronal connections associated with olfactory processing found in healthy young and old adults to those with Alzheimer's disease. They were particularly interested in olfactory threshold. I'm not an expert on olfactory processing, but a simple Google search tells me that this refers to the minimum concentration of an odor that one can detect. The abstract doesn't go into a lot of detail on the methods, but the authors share that they found that olfactory dysfunction occurs prior to diagnosis and worsens as cognitive decline increases over time. Those with AD who had high degree of impaired odor detection and identification showed decreased neural activity in task-related signals in all regions of the primary olfactory cortex. It's interesting to note that these same patients had compensatory increased brain activation in the entorhinal cortex, which distinguished them from the other groups, according to the authors. The researchers hope that an olfactory detection test could one day be used to diagnose AD at early stages and help with therapeutic interventions for people with AD risk. Next up, paper number two looks at olfactory dysfunction and its relationship with disease severity. It's published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease by first author Wang, last author Ning, and it's titled... Olfactory dysfunction is already present with subjective cognitive decline and deepens with disease severity in the Alzheimer's disease spectrum. This study was conducted to assess the degree of odor dysfunction in patients and compare this to cognitive ability. So this was done in patients with subjective cognitive decline, mild cognitive impairment, and AD. 265 patients with varying levels of cognitive decline were examined under the sniff and stick screen and subjected to a comprehensive neuropsychological examination. The authors found that odor identification dysfunction worsened as the patient's cognitive performance declined. 80 patients showed the highest proportion of odor identification deficits, but interestingly, they didn't show increased subjective olfactory dysfunction compared to the other groups. Check the paper for more details on their analysis and results that I couldn't get into here. But all in all, the subjective cognitive decline patients showed the earliest indication of olfactory damage, which worsened with disease severity in the AD group. This information could help in identifying these patients that may develop AD in the future. For the third paper of the episode, we are moving away from humans and into a study of A-beta accumulation in a mouse model of AD. This one is from first author Sun and last author Moon, and it was published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. It's called Region-Specific Amyloid Beta Accumulation in the Olfactory System Influences Olfactory Sensory Neuronal Dysfunction in 5X FAD Mice. These scientists wanted to know how the spatial distribution of the A-beta oligomer deposit impacts the damage to the olfactory system, specifically the olfactory sensory neurons in AD. 
This study looked at this by using 5X FAD transgenic mice. And if you work on these mice, you know that they express high levels of A-beta as well as other AD phenotypes. The authors found that these mice showed deficits in detecting odors and that this was associated with a decrease in the activation of olfactory sensory neurons. A-beta accumulation was seen in the olfactory epithelial ectoturbinate and the ventral olfactory bulb glomeruli. A-beta oligomer accumulation in these regions damaged these areas in the peripheral olfactory system, creating hyporeactivity, according to the authors. This suggests that olfactory dysfunction in AD patients could be caused in part by A-beta accumulation in the olfactory sensory neurons of the peripheral system. Now let's take a look at olfaction in AD from yet another angle. The next paper, paper four, explores olfactory behavior in rats and how this relates to the expression of the enzyme neprilisin. It's titled, Developmental Profile of Brain Neprilisin Expression Correlates with Olfactory Behavior of Rats. This one is published in the Journal of Molecular Neuroscience by first author Vasilev and last author Nalaveeva. The neuropeptidase neprilisin, or NEP, is the most dominant A-beta peptide degrading enzyme in the brain. NEP becomes inactivated and levels decrease in the early stages of aging and AD. So this study was designed to examine NEP mRNA expression in the olfactory bulbs, the entorhinal cortex, hippocampus, parietal cortex, and the striatum of developing rats. What this study found was that there was an initial increase followed by a decrease in NEP expression in rat brain structures that are involved in olfaction. So some of the ones I just mentioned, the entorhinal cortex, parietal cortex, and hippocampus. Um, and this, this happened as mice aged. So there was an initial increase and then a decrease as the rats aged. Sorry, I'm getting rats and mice mixed up. There was an initial increase and then a decrease as the rats aged. This correlated with a decline in the rat olfactory functions. The authors also report that administrating a histone deacetylase inhibitor restored NAP mRNA levels in the brain and improved olfactory processing. This study demonstrated the role of NEP in olfaction. Okay, enough about olfaction. Now we're going to talk about vision. This next study describes a new behavioral task for mice to test for visual impairments. Paper number five is color and contrast vision in mouse models of aging and Alzheimer's disease using a novel visual stimuli forearm maze. First author of this one is Vit, and last author is Coronio Hameo. I'm not sure about the pronunciation. This one was published in Scientific Reports. To determine visual impairments in normal aging, as well as over the progression of AD, these authors used a visual stimuli forearm maze with intensity-controlled LED emitters to detect specific changes of color vision. Sounds like a very fancy maze. Transition patterns and timing, in contrast to sensitivity and color discrimination, were analyzed. The study showed that color and contrast mode alternation deficits were found in transgenic APP-PS1 mouse models of AD. Interestingly, this was at a time point when hippocampal-based memory and learning were, were still intact. The researchers described AD-associated impairments in contrast sensitivity and color discrimination 
uncovered with this task that are comparable to deficits in AD patients. This is potentially a new tool to look at visual deficits in AD models and in aged mice. Next up, paper number six is about nociception, otherwise known as pain perception. This one is published fittingly in the journal Pain by Li and Chang as the first and last authors, and it's titled, Altered Nociception in Alzheimer's Disease is Associated with Step Signaling. Some AD patients experience changes to pain sensitivity. In this study, researchers looked at signaling of the striatal-enriched protein tyrannase phosphatase, which I'll be referring to as STEP. This phosphatase is involved in sensory signaling. They looked at this in APP transgenic mice. The authors state that these mice had increased STEP activity and lowered sensitivity to mechanical and thermal stimulation compared to the wild-type group at ages 6, 9, and 12 months. In the hippocampi, elevated step activity was associated with decreased phosphorylation of proteins known to be involved with nociception. In addition, the role of step was observed when TC2153, which is an anti-step pharmacological agent, was given to the mice. This reversed both cognitive and nociception changes in these mice, according to the authors. Interesting. So the next three papers are moving on to cognition and memory in Alzheimer's disease. First up, paper number seven of the episode. This is published in the journal Neurology by first author Mezulam and last author Rogalski, and it's called Memory Resilience in Alzheimer's Disease with Primary Progressive Aphasia. So Mesulam and colleagues found that memory was preserved in 80 patients who had primary progressive aphasia which is a language impairment syndrome associated with neurodegenerative disease. I'll be referring to this as PPA for the rest of the abstract. In the 17 patients with PPA from the study, episodic memory, which was tested with nonverbal items, did not decline in the 2.3 years after initial testing, even though PPA symptoms had already been present for an average of over six years. However, language skills did decline in this period. These patients were compared to 14 controls who had AD, but they didn't have primary progressive aphasia. Imaging performed on the PPA group showed asymmetric left-sided mediotemporal atrophy. On autopsy, both groups had bilateral hippocampal enterrhinal neurofibrillary degeneration. Compared with the typical Alzheimer's group, the PPA group had reduced mediotemporal TDP43 pathology and a lower frequency of the APOE4 genotype. So this study's outcome suggests that the medial temporal lobe structures in the PPA Alzheimer's disease patients could be considered resilient to Alzheimer's pathology. It's important to note that a small sample size was used in this study. Our next paper, paper number eight, looks at another cognitive measure, semantic intrusion errors. You can find this paper published in International Psychogeriatry, by first author Zhang and last author Lowenstein. The name of this paper is Semantic Intrusion Errors as a Function of Age, Amyloid, and Volumetric Loss, a Confirmatory Path Analysis. Over 200 participants with a mean age of 72.1 who scored above 16 on the mini mental state exam were recruited for this cross-sectional study. They ranged from cognitively normal to dementia states. 
The authors wanted to learn about the relationship between semantic intrusion errors in age, APOE epsilon 4 genotype, amyloid levels, and volumetric reductions in the brain. So many things. They used the Lassie L test, so that's L-A-S-S-I-L, which is a cognitive stress test that has been shown by previous studies to predict preclinical and prodromal AD. After controlling for covariates, it was found that increased amyloid deposition and decreased brain volumes in AD-prone regions was related to various types of intrusions in the LACL exam. So these are semantic intrusion errors. Also, it was found that APOE, epsilon-4 status, and age didn't influence LACL cognitive markers, but indirectly showed changes on amyloid positivity and volumes of AD-prone brain regions. This was quite a complex abstract, so please check out the paper itself if you're interested in learning more about their methods and their results. Speaking of semantics, our next paper is on verb semantic deficits in AD. This one is paper number nine of the episode, called Category-Specific Verb Semantic Deficits in Alzheimer's Disease, Evidence from Static and Dynamic Action Naming. It's published in Cognitive Neuropsychology by first author De Almeida and last author Schwartz. This study looked at a cohort of patients with probable AD and their performance in an action naming task that measured different aspects of verb knowledge. I'm not going to go into detail on the methods, and they don't mention in the abstract any control groups or the number of participants, so please investigate the paper yourself for this information if you're interested. The authors state that the probable AD patients had impairments in naming actions compared to objects, in naming the simple past tense of verbs, and in the thematic assignment of verbs. They also compared dynamic scenes with static scenes and found that dynamic scenes were a better method to use when testing verb knowledge in AD. Okay, and with that, let's take a quick break before we get into the rest of the papers in today's episode. I'll see you in a sec. Hey listeners, I'm here to let you know Aminder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Now we have a few papers on psychiatric symptoms and emotions in AD. First, a paper comparing neuropsychiatric symptoms in young onset and late onset AD. Coming from the journal Geroscience, the first author is Gummis and the last author is Tartaglia. Paper number 10 is titled Progression of Neuropsychiatric Symptoms in Young Onset versus Late Onset Alzheimer's Disease. Young onset and late onset Alzheimer's disease present differently when it comes to symptoms. In this study, the authors explored differences in neuropsychiatric symptoms in 126 young onset versus 505 late onset Alzheimer's disease individuals. These patients were part of the National Alzheimer's Coordinating Center Uniform Dataset and the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, or ADME. Patients completed the Neuropsychiatric Inventory Questionnaire at one-year intervals over four years. Using a mixed effects model, it was revealed that the prevalence of depression in patients with young-onset AD is greater than in late-onset AD, and that this difference persists over time when antidepressant usage is included in the analysis. 
Sex differences were also considered in this study, though the authors don't expand on this. So that was an interesting study that compared the psychiatric symptoms between these two different AD variants. Now, paper 11 is just by two authors, Giannulli and Zolaki. They're looking at the relationship that depression has with mild AD and the ability to make financial decisions. This was published in Alzheimer's Disease and Associated Disorders and is titled Mild Alzheimer's Disease, Financial Capacity, and the Role of Depression. Eyes wide shut. And there's a question mark at the end there, if you couldn't tell by the way I said it. To study the relationship between depression, mild AD, and how this influences financial capacity, Giannulli and Tsolaki had a sample of 109 patients undergo a series of tests. The patients consisted of four groups, mild AD with and without depression, and cognitively normal elderly patients with or without depression. They performed the mini mental state exam, the 15-item geriatric depression scale, and the legal capacity for property law transactions assessment scale. It was found that in comparison to those patients without comorbid depression, those in the mild AD group with depression performed poorly on the legal capacity for property law transactions assessment scale. That's a mouthful. So all in all, this study suggests that depression paired with memory impairment, as is the case in AD, leads to a decreased financial capacity. Okay, so we're switching gears once again to animals with paper number 12. How are emotional memories such as fear-based memory affected in AD? And are there possible ways to treat this? This paper begins to answer some of those questions. And here's something you don't see very often. It only has one author named Karuna Karan, and it's published in Scientific Reports. Wow, that's pretty impressive. This paper is called Early Beta Adrenoceptor Dependent Time Window for Fear Memory Persistence in ABP PS1 Mice. So Karuna Karan, the author, examined the behavioral expression of fear memory through a fear learning task in two-month-old APP PS1 mice. Their finding showed impairment in long-term, but not in short-term, Pavlovian hippocampal-dependent contextual fear memory. Intra-CA1, so that's in the CA1 region of the hippocampus, infusion of a beta-adrenoceptor agonist in the ventral hippocampus of these mice could rescue this long-term contextual fear memory, um, but this was when it was given before the fear learning task. At the same token, infusion of the agonist after fear conditioning did partially restore memory. When infusion occurred at over 12 hours past conditioning, there was no impact seen in memory. Interesting. The results suggest that beta-adrenergic neuromodulation can be helpful in maintaining long-term fear memory in these transgenic mice. They also found that infusion of a beta-adrenoceptor antagonist to wild-type animals impaired long-term fear memory when it was given before conditioning. These results imply that beta-adrenoceptors play an important role in this form of long-term fear memory. Early beta-adrenoceptor intervention seems to promote long-term fear memory persistence in these AD mice. In our last section of the episode, we have three papers on sleep and circadian rhythms. Sleep and circadian disturbances are found in many neurodegenerative disorders, including AD, frontotemporal dementia, and also the disease that my own research focuses on, 
Huntington's disease. I might want to take a nap after I finish recording, or actually, I might go to bed because it is pretty late here, which is totally on topic for this next paper and this whole section, actually. So paper number 13 is titled, Memory Relevant Nap Sleep Physiology in Healthy and Pathological Aging. The first author is Ladin Bauer. Last author is Flowell, and it's published in Sleep. Temporal interactions between non-REM slow oscillations and spindles have been shown to be important for memory consolidation, and this is something that deteriorates in older adults. So here, the researchers wanted to see how this oscillatory interaction is affected in early AD and mild cognitive impairment. They had participants take a 90-minute nap and looked at slow oscillations associated with memory, as well as changes to sleep-dependent memory, among other measures. These participants were healthy, young, and old adults, as well as older adults with MCI. Interestingly, all the, difference all the differences that they found were between young adults and older adults, or young adults and MCI patients, but no differences were found between older healthy adults and older adults with MCI. The differences between the young and old groups included sleep metrics, such as slow oscillation spindle coupling, and the retention of verbal memories. These authors believe that improving sleep physiology could help memory decline in both groups, though there was no additional benefit for the patients with MCI. As someone who doesn't always get enough sleep, this is definitely a wake-up call to me, no pun intended. Next up, a paper looking at oscillations in levels of common AD markers in the temporal cortex that may affect cognition in a rat model of AD. Paper number 14 is called Daily Oscillation of Cognitive Factors is Modified in the Temporal Cortex of an Amyloid Beta 1-42 Induced Rat Model of Alzheimer's Disease. It's published in Brain Research Bulletin by first author Coria Lucero and last author Navigator Fonzo. Expression of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, and the protein kinase track B display a daily variation. These researchers studied the effect of A-beta on this daily rhythm by injecting A-beta 1 to 42 peptide into the temporal cortex of rats. The researchers claim that A-beta aggregations modified the daily mRNA expressions of BDNF, track B, APOE, and retinoic acid-related orphan, or ROR-alpha, receptor in the rats. This experiment indicates that increased levels of A-beta plays a role in the normal rhythm of these receptors, which are associated with cognition in animal models of AD. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem from the abstract like they actually looked at cognition in the rats, so maybe that's something for a future study. We are at the last paper of the episode, another animal model paper. This one explores the role of the orexin receptor 1 and tau pathology in sleep disturbances. This one is by first author Keenan and last author Jacobson, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. The title is Decreased Orexin Receptor 1 mRNA Expression in the Locus Cerulis in both Tau Transgenic, RTG4510, and Tau Knockout Mice, and Accompanying Ascending Arousal System Tau Invasion in RTG4510. 
In this study, the authors studied the relationship between sleep disturbances and their impact on Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia. They specifically looked into the orexin system, which is a hormone that regulates sleep, and how it is negatively impacted by tau accumulation. Previous research has suggested that the loss of orexin neurons results in insomnia. In this paper, the researchers analyzed expression levels of the orexin receptor in the noradrenergic locus cerulis and in orexinergic lateral hypothalamus neurons of tau transgenic mice. They discovered that orexin receptor 1 mRNA expression was decreased in locus cerulis, whereas orexin receptor 2 mRNA levels were unaffected. Tau was seen to invade these brain regions in their in-situ hybridization and immunohistochemistry results. The authors suggest that tau protein impairs orexin receptor 1 expression and could lead to the inconsistent sleep patterns seen in AD and frontotemporal dementia. And that's the end of the episode. If some of these papers covered today caught your attention, please check out our bibliography. The link's in the show notes. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Aminder. If you want to check out more episodes on this topic, there's another episode coming out soon hosted by Maria on cognitive testing to diagnose Alzheimer's disease. And as I mentioned at the start, we have episodes coming out every single day with a break on Saturdays for you to catch up. So definitely tune in to some of our other episodes from all of our wonderful hosts. If you're interested in getting involved with the podcast, I have good news for you. We're currently recruiting. Send us a CV and an idea of what you'd like to do with Aminder, and we'll get back to you. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, and we also have a new YouTube channel as well. And um, you can also find me on Instagram and Twitter as well, if you want, at ms.ellenkosh, my name. I'm a newbie on Twitter, so do me a favor and follow me, and I promise I'll follow you back. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, each episode of Aminder is the result of many hours of work from our awesome team of volunteers. Thank you to Ellen Rowe and Jacques Ferriera and the rest of the sorting team for sorting the abstracts this month into the bite-sized topics that we have for our episodes. Thanks so much for V for writing and helping me with the summarizing the abstracts of the episode and to Anusha for reviewing the edited episode. The bibliography will be created by Maggie and the word cloud by Sarah, who is also one of the co-founders and co-manager of the show. As always, the music you've heard today was created by Anusha Kamesh, and you can find her on SoundCloud under her name or on YouTube under AK Music. With that, we really hope that you found this podcast useful and accessible. See you again soon.